was worth its weight in, in you know, monetary value. So how much salary we have is, is the ability to acquire salt because it was limiting and so necessary at that point. You're listening to the Field Reports podcast. I'm your host, Ravindra, and today we have with us Dr. Natalie Clay. She's the winner of this year's Elton Prize and an assistant professor at Louisiana Tech University. Hi, Natalie. Congrats uh, on winning the prize. Thank you, and thank you for having me on. So you work on nutritional ecology and biogeochemistry. Could you tell us more about it? Sure. So there's approximately 25 biologically essential nutrients, and organisms need these to survive. Some of those are like carbon, nitrogen, sodium, for instance. And when organisms struggle to gain access to one or more of these nutrients, it can impact their activity, ultimately their fitness. And so my research largely explores how either relative shortfalls or ample access to these nutrients help shape what individuals are doing, um, and these individuals that I focus on are in decomposer communities. So I also look at how uh, the relative availability of nutrients shapes these communities, meaning who's there and in what abundances, and then what ultimately this means for what those organisms do in the ecosystem. So like breaking down the dead leaf litter or wood. Right. So what are these nutrients? that you mentioned, are they like carbs and proteins and, and, and fats, or, and, and is it more than that? So I often uh, look at these more at an elemental level, so looking at um, stoichiometry in terms of the relative amounts of a given element like carbon to nitrogen or sodium. In reality, many of these occur in more complex forms, just like you said, so proteins, carbohydrates um, and that does play a big role in the organism's physiology so it's, it is important to look at both of those things. Right, right. And, and your work also includes working on riparian systems and, and food web structure. Could you tell us more about those projects? Um, sure. So uh, the riparian work uh, is in collaboration with uh, Sally Endrickin and Michelle Evans-White, um, we are looking at stream riparian connections um, and looking at how relative availability of nutrients impacts, impact the flow of um, carbon from the terrestrial system and into the streams and then what that has an effect on the organisms in the streams as well as the terrestrial systems. They're usually studied apart, so we're trying to bridge that gap. And, and, and what about food web structure? Do, what, what kind of work do you do in that? So oftentimes uh, these kinds of questions involve adding uh, some nutrient like sodium to either a terrestrial or a, an aquatic system. Um, and so, so then after that's been added, we can look at how that impacts which organisms show up in, in those communities and which over time start accumulating. Um, so, for instance, with salt, um, organisms that consume plants, like detritivores, um, tend to really strongly recruit to places where there's salt. 
And this happens both on short time scales, so just finding the resource, rapidly getting there in a matter of days or weeks, but also on long time scales. So we can see those critters staying in the places where there's additional salt over long time periods like years. Right, right. And, and you won the Elton Prize for the paper where you tested a few hypotheses on the degree of omnivory in ants. Uh, could you tell us more about the paper? Sure. So this really stemmed from, again, looking at salt and how it impacts individual behavior, in particular the sodium aspect of salt. And so, like I said, organisms that eat plants tend to be salt limited. This is because plants don't really require salt very much, generally. Um, so they don't have very much in their tissues, whereas organisms that consume plants um, so many of your detritivores or any herbivores, they concentrate sodium at 10 to 100 times above what you find in plants. And this is important for them because they have this nervous system. It's important for pretty much all of the metabolic functions in these consumers. So what they're eating has very little salt, but they need much more to maintain their um, physiological function. So a lot of my research was what happens when you add salt, but then also where are these organisms getting salt? On a broad macro scale, we can see that sodium is distributed based off of distance from an ocean. So if you're really close to the coast, um, lots of salt is deposited in oceanic aerosols. Um, and so salt is not limiting when you're near uh, a coastline. But as you move away from that coastline, it becomes increasingly more hard to find salt. It's really not available. And this is the reason that, for instance, many um, people owning livestock provide things like cattle with mineral licks so that they can have access to those nutrients that aren't, aren't uh, available in inland environments. So the question was, how then, when salt is limiting, are these organisms attaining salt? So one of the first things I tested was um, access to sodium from uh, rapid and frequent deposition, mainly in urine. So urine and organisms are taking in salts. They also need to get rid of salt. So urine is a really great source of that. And in inland environments, organisms like termites in particular really recruit to um, those short-term deposition of salt through urine. But I wasn't quite satisfied, and after reading some papers and thinking about where else um, organisms could get that salt, it occurred to me that you know organisms themselves are a way to get salt. So predators don't tend to be sodium limited. We don't see them attracted to um, sodium additions in the field because they're already eating a salty meal. So think of a burger versus a salad. Salad, you have to add salt to eat it because it's just otherwise very, very um, not tasty and not salty. But a burger, you've got all of that yummy salt there already. Um, and so this idea came from thinking about, well, perhaps if organisms have a little plasticity in their diet, so they're able to eat both plants and animal tissue, one easy way to get access to salt 
would be to consume a little bit more of that animal tissue. And so that's really where this uh, study came out of. I'm sure I'm not supposed to extrapolate these results to humans, but what do you think? Do you think people that live in the coastal areas eat more meat? Humans are a tough one because we've kind of altered our own access to nutrients. So, um, you know, in fact, most of the time it's a struggle to avoid salt in, in the diet. It's almost toxic at a certain point. Too many legs, potato chips. <laughs> but um, if you go back in time, actually, people did have a sodium limitation. And, you know, we get our terms like salary. Um, and um, salad as well from the fact that uh, salt was worth its weight in, in you know, monetary value. So how much salary you have is, is the ability to acquire salt because it was limiting and so necessary at that point. So historically, probably people had more of a um, limitation when trying to get salt if they were away from a coastline but not so much anymore. Uh, that's very, yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, so does it ever get to a point where uh, salt is too much for any animal? What happens in, in that case? They, they get yes, too much absolutely. salt. Yes, um, absolutely. So sodium can be toxic in too much of a quantity, and it's one of those uh, this sodium-seeking behavior in organisms and also the response to too much is kind of a highly conserved trait across organisms. So when sodium is low, oftentimes organisms have a physiological change where they start seeking salt. On the converse, when it's too much, this causes a physiological response where they have to get rid of it. So organisms often then um, create water or it causes them to vomit um, and after a point it can be toxic and lethal. So yes, too much salt can be a bad thing. And in your paper you also measure net primary productivity and carnivory in ants. So what kind of methods do you use to uh, measure these? So the primary productivity we used um, data from MODIS which was the uh, this remote uh, sensing uh, method for taking pictures from space and calculating the amount of carbon that's available in those ecosystems and then minus the amount they're respiring. So we use data that were collected on a, on a broad spatial scale to get primary productivity. That wasn't something we measured in the field ourselves. Carnivory, um, was a fun thing to measure. Uh, there is a technique um, using nitrogen-stable isotopes that actually allows one to quantify where in trophic position a given organism sits. So prior to stable isotope analysis, uh, scientists were really limited to just saying, well, I saw it eat you know, a springtail today, and I saw it consume some sugar, the next day, so I think it's an omnivore, and it was this qualitative, subjective, these organisms are omnivores, these organisms are carnivores, these ones are herbivores. Um, stable isotope analysis allows you to put a value on how uh, carnivorous an organism is. 
and it relies on the fact that nitrogen in particular in this case it has a light form and a heavy form and although the amount in weight is actually really really tiny when thinking about it ourselves our biochemical reactions actually discriminate against the heavy nitrogen because it takes just a little bit more uh, energy to process so it tends to accumulate in tissues rather than being processed and excreted so the more uh, organisms uh, a given focal taxa eats, so the higher up in the food chain it gets, the more of this heavy nitrogen it accumulates. And so we can then use mass spectrometry to then look at the amount of heavy to light nitrogen that an organism has and put it in its particular trophic position in a food web. That's, that's very fascinating. It's a very good way, I guess, to uh, assign without even having to look at the behavior of the animal. Yeah, it, was, I mean, it opens up a whole new world of questions that you can ask and with more, uh, a higher magnification than you could have otherwise. Exactly. And, and what was the motivation behind this whole story? How did you start with this project? Um, so again, it went back to asking how these organisms get salt. If 80% of environments are potentially sodium limited, so away from coastlines, yet we have all of these organisms surviving, surviving and functioning, they must be acquiring salt somehow. Um, and in some cases, it may be opportunistic, running into that excretion patch or visiting a salt lick or you know, if they live near uh, a roads in the north, many organisms go and lick the salt right off the, uh, the roads in the US um, to gain access to that salt, but other organisms don't have that access. So how could they get it? And if an organism is a little bit flexible in what it can eat, that consuming of other organisms um, really is a great way to get salt. So it was testing this idea and really it came from, you know, working on this, reading some papers. There was a paper by Davidson and colleagues and they were looking at uh, ants in canopies of Peru versus Borneo. Mm -hmm. uh, and they found, they looked at the stable isotopes of those ants and the ones in Peru which is away from a coline there, not very salty at all, uh, tended to be higher in their nitrogen, their, their heavy nitrogen, than the ones in Borneo, which was a more uh, coastal forest in that case. And so kind of seeing these things in the literature um, and then making observations in the field, I came up with this hypothesis for how organisms might be getting access to salts and really what might be generating a underlying geography of omnivory, so a way to actually predict when an organism is going to consume more animal tissue relative to plant tissue. Changing gears here, uh, you've done some beautiful ant drawings in, in the paper. Could you tell us about them? Are you trained or self-taught? Well, thank you, first of all. Um, <laughs> as an undergraduate, I double majored in biology and art and I concentrated in studio art. Um, so drawing has always been 
passion of mine. Uh, and sometimes it's fun to be able to incorporate that into the science side of things as well. Um, so they're just another way to help visualize what's going on. Um. Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's an important thing um, to to put art into science and, and in communicating the science through art. Um, and you're also involved in a few outreach activities. Could you tell us more about what you do in, in that regard? Sure. Um, whenever possible, I like to share my passion for bugs with kids and other people. Um, so bugs are typically taboo for many people or generate this uh, knee-jerk, ah, a bug reaction. <laughs> And usually that's a learned response. So if you can get people to, you know, get past that, ah, a bug, you know, it's gross, or even before they generate that kind of reaction and show them how cool and diverse bugs are, it can open up a, you know, a new window for those kids or students. I teach entomology at Louisiana Tech. Um, for them to discover a whole new world that they didn't realize was there before. Um, and so I think it's really important to try to communicate how cool science is by getting uh, people excited about organisms and natural history in general. And so when I get the opportunity to do those kinds of things, I try to, to try to do that whenever possible. Yeah. Uh, and I ask this question to everyone uh, that I've been interviewing. If you had the power to change, what would you change in the way science is being practiced now? That's a good question. Um, so, I think maybe one of the things I've been seeing a big change in is people's appreciation for natural history and just understanding organisms in general for the sake of understanding the organisms. So there seems to be a current emphasis on um, readily and immediately identifying how science will directly you know, impact someone's life, a, a human life. And you know, a lot of the most amazing scientific studies and discoveries didn't come from that angle. Um, they came from someone just being curious uh, and wanting to ask a question. And so I think I would love to see more of an emphasis being placed again on curiosity and just understanding something and exploring something for the sake of learning about it. Right. Well, uh, thank, thank you very much again uh, and congratulations on winning thank the prize. You. That was Dr. Natalie Clay. If you like our podcast, please share and subscribe and check out the Journal of Animal Ecology's website. See you next time.